This is the Education Gadfly Show. <laughs> I'm just seeing the Hunger Games headlines flash in front of my eyes, and I don't think they look great. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the Aaron Judge of Education Reform, Tom Talk. Happy to be here. So, Tom, wow, Aaron Judge, can I admit that 24 hours ago, I didn't know who this guy was? And uh, we need to know who he is. Alyssa, this is like the next big star in Major League Baseball. Can I admit, at this current moment, I still don't know who he is. He hit 30 home runs in the first half of the season, and he won the home run derby last night, uh, which was very exciting. And the funnest part about it that, that I saw was that Yankees fans have taken to wearing, uh, you know, fake judge uh, little uh, wigs to root him on because his last name is Judge. So, so using context clues there, he is a baseball player on the team called the Yankees, <laughs> is yes. what I'm taking away. Very good. Okay. Nice. Tom, are you, are you a baseball fan? I am. Uh, I grew up a Mets fan, but I have migrated down 95 you know, uh, and now support the Nationals. Yeah. Uh, hey, this could be the year for the Nationals, right? It could be if they have any uh, relief pitching by the end of the season. That's right. And I'm sure there's an analogy here in education, right? Is, is, yeah, did you ever have a school that's like, wow, we have a great school. If only we could hire one more staff member to complete it. If we could just have that great, I don't know, what, or, what, what or, special ed. Hell, uh, or fire that senior teacher who's just not cutting fire it. Fire that mm-hmm. senior teacher who's not cutting it like the Nats bullpen is not seen. Right. Be cutting it. Well, we're going to talk all about that this week with Tom Top. Let's play or do our Ed Reform update. All right, I'm I'm a little little slow here. You know, we humidity is at like 97.8 percent here in Washington D.C., so this slows all of us down a little bit. At least my walking through chlorine water, it's pretty bad. Okay, so Tom, uh, you had a piece in the Washington Monthly recently, and other people might have seen it also online at, at, at the new organization that you lead. Remind people what that is, by the way. Uh, Future Ed, which is an independent think tank at uh, Georgetown University's McCord okay. School of Public Policy. Very cool. So you looked at uh, teacher evaluation reform in Washington, D.C. This is something that's gotten a lot of attention over the years, and yet kind of been forgotten in the last few years. It hasn't been a major part of the reform mm-hmm. conversation. The conventional wisdom is that in most places, teacher evaluation reform was a disaster, but maybe not in D.C. Well, in D.C., uh, they uh, built on their teacher evaluation reforms, which were introduced during the Michelle Rhee era, which was 2007 through 2010. Yeah. She left. Her successor, Kaya Henderson, went underground a little bit, didn't provide uh, as much of a protagonist to the national press. They went elsewhere. And uh, Kaya and her team, though, doubled down on reform. And so yep. they built on evaluation to add to it a career ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they added uh, some very thoughtful uh, initiatives to recruit and retain top teachers mm-hmm. uh, using the teacher evaluation results to identify what was working and what mm-hmm. was not in their reforms. They layered on top of that a brand new curriculum tied to the mm-hmm. Common Core. Uh, a new- really good curriculum, by the <laughs> way. Yeah. Yep. And- very rich. Yeah. And uh, when they discovered that, this is maybe 2014-15 now, when they discovered the teachers still struggled to teach that more rigorous curriculum, they built out a network of new uh, curriculum materials, uh, new course contents, 
and uh, help to help teachers uh, do better. And then last year, they went even a step further, introducing into each school a, a team-based approach to professional development, uh, again, built on the evaluation system in that they have a whole cadre of so-called teacher leaders who are helping deliver this new school-based professional development. And they just couldn't have done that if they didn't know who was doing a good job and who wasn't in, in the uh, school system. So, you know, D.C. is something of an ed reform nerve. It feels like uh, both within the traditional public schools that has seen tremendous progress Mm -hmm. over the last uh, decade uh, or so, and also in a very high performing charter school sector. I mean, I've said before, look, every city in America would be lucky to have what DC now has, which is... you know, really two sectors that are both getting better and better at a rapid clip. And, you know, whether that's because of the reforms, if it's also because of universal pre-K, if it's also because of a lot of funding, uh, uh, you know. Talent centered. Yes, people, for whatever reason, want to live here in the mm-hmm. swamp of Washington, D.C., all of these things. So take that as a given. I know some people don't like this story, right? They, they still want to attack D.C. and somehow argue that it's it's a mirage. I mean, this is the Diane Ravage, John Marrow left that wants to make this case. But let, let's for a moment here just Except if we can, that yes, something really good has happened in DC. Can it be exported elsewhere? And particularly this this stuff around teachers, Tom. Yeah, I think it can because if you look at the basic ingredients, they are replicable, right? So you have a comprehensive teacher evaluation system that that doesn't rely solely on student test scores, as many of the critics suggest it does. That only applies to fifteen percent of the teachers, and then it's still only thirty five percent of their scores. So you have multiple classroom observations, you have uh, student surveys, and you have test scores, and you have other things. So you build, uh, you can build a solid evaluation system, and then the strategies that DCPS used to attract and retain teachers travel mm-hmm. pretty easily. Um, the in-school professional development that I was just describing, their most recent sort of iteration of their reform mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. can be done. So the answer is yes, but did did the stars align here a little bit? Yeah, they did have a lot of money. Uh, they had uh, continuous uh, sort of stable leadership mm-hmm. uh, over over a decade uh, and some other things that you mentioned, but it doesn't mean that you can't do it elsewhere. I mean, I think another ingredient too, and you kind of got into it in a past paper that you wrote on teacher evals from 2016, and we actually did a report on teacher union contracts in December and whether or not they allowed you to fire an ineffective teacher. And I think that's a huge impediment too in many cities currently that is different than what we have in D.C., Absolutely. So two things here. One, thanks to Congress uh, in the 1990s, since the 1990s, the district has no longer had to bargain collectively their evaluation system. So that was a a big benefit early on. And then they also uh, negotiated, and and it was a real give and take, a union contract that did away with seniority-based hiring and firing Mm -hmm. and and others, some of the traditional labor practices that that do impede efforts to create uh, stronger teams and schools. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe in part because Mm -hmm. the union had been weakened by this huge charter school movement. They'd lost so many teachers and and kids and money. Uh, There's also a big scandal. uh, Right. I mean, a couple of presidents ago, uh, there was... uh, you know, federal indictments and, and the president of the union ended up in federal prison for yeah. several years. You need more of that. <laughs> but let me push on something because I, I think what Michelle and her team did in D.C. was amazing. But what I'm mad about when it comes to Michelle and her team, people like Eric Larum, a friend of mine, who went with her to Students First, is they took that lesson of what had happened in a city, in a district, sort of a state, but more of a district. And they tried to then create an advocacy organization that had an advocacy agenda saying that states should mandate 
that other districts do this sort of thing. And or that the federal government, through race to the top, this wasn't just them, of course, this was also the administration, Gates, others, that the federal government should incentivize, if not mandate, uh, that states uh, make districts do this. And that's where we started running into all kinds of trouble, right? That uh, that these statewide evaluation systems were almost doomed from the start because the, the locus of action was supposed to be at the district level, not at the state level. What do you think about this? Is that fair to say? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with giving uh, local education leaders incentives uh, to do... Local, local. I'm talking about states. The problem is well, they try to do this at the state and federal level. Yeah, but in a number of states, the, the sort of uh, incentives pass through to local school districts. So incentivizing good behavior that, that helps kids is not a bad thing. You then have to provide a lot of support and, and ultimately you, you have to have the uh, buy-in of the sort that you found you find in D.C., right? Because mm-hmm. people like Jason Cameras, who was one of the key architects of the D.C. human capital reforms, you know, kept his head down, worked hard, uh, U.S. Teacher of the Year, mm-hmm. DFA person, you know, people like that are in the engine room making these reforms happen. And if you don't get that at the district level, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen, even if you do have incentives. So I would say uh, the, the impetus for reform can be a combination of sort of outside in and, and sort of inside out. Yeah, I yeah. think, too, you really hit on the buy-in, the just question of buy-in and having buy-in. And I think that was something that the team that's been at DCPS since 2010, which has largely been consistent even mm-hmm. since the Michelle Riera, um, did in a different way. And I think that has led to it being a little stickier than it was in the Michelle Riera. Right. And and I guess I wish that, I guess my, my main argument is that maybe they should have just gone and become evangelicals for this approach, talking to other urban superintendents. Mm-hmm. I mean, where else can we point to? Can we? Is there anywhere else other than DC where this sort of thing has taken root? And if not, why not? You know, I mean, and I get, you know, a listener mm-hmm. raised the, the state policy issues. That is for real, you know, but it seems like the first thing is you need a superintendent, a school board or a mayor or, you know, the leadership at the local level say, hey, we really want to do this. And then they can figure out advocating at the state level to get things fixed if need be. Well, you know, as well as anybody, Mike, change is hard, right? So you're changing behavior, you're changing policy, you're changing culture. So, um, it's tough work, uh, which is why I'm I'm a little bit more sanguine about incentives uh, than than perhaps you are. Uh, look at a state like Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, strong state leadership. Uh, buy-in across the different stakeholders at the state level. And they've done a good job of making change, not only in teacher evaluation, but in professional development, other aspects of human capital uh, reform that, you know, is encouraging, I'd say. Yeah. Well, look, I've said this before. I think that we are entering a time when policy as a main lever for reform is is not going to get a lot of action at the federal level or state level. I think we're just seeing, you know, our politics are broken and uh, not a lot of appetite for that. Mm -hmm. So we got to get really good fast at figuring out how do we get more local uh, school districts to buy into what DC has done? Well, I mean, that's one reason why I wrote this article, right? Yeah. Is an effort in an effort to to create something of a case study uh, that illustrates a that you can do this, mm-hmm. and then give people a bit of a roadmap uh, as to mm-hmm. how you do it. And so, you know, that ideas matter. Uh, you've got to convince people that it's worth their time and energy to do these things. And then if you're able to do that, uh, and that's where, you know, your work at Fordham comes in, the work we're doing at Future Ed contributes, uh, you know, then you get into the hard work of actually making it happen. But it's not going to happen unless people are convinced that it's worth doing. All that's right. A great note to end on. It is indeed. Thank you very much, Tom. Talk from Future Ed. Check out his article. Uh, it is in the Washington Monthly. You can also find it at Future Ed. Tom, hope you come back sometime. Thank you very much for having me. Keep hitting those home runs. Thank you so right. much. Go Nats. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. 
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Are you uh, enjoying the Major League Baseball All-Star activities this uh, week or not so much? No, I am no. not. No, your husband Sorry. into it. No. We're not into no. it. We're just People. waiting for football to start. Let's just be honest. Oh, interesting. You know, <laughs> my, waiting for red carpet season. I'll my nine-year-old son, Nico, is totally into baseball. I mean, he is just obsessed with it right now. Yeah. So he was enjoying the home run derby. And he has been starting to ask me, Dad, Dad, are we going to get to go to the All-Star game next year? Okay. That is in oh, Washington, D.C. Nice. And lo and behold, it's like the Googles were reading my mind, what popped into my inbox. But hey, Washingtonian, if you buy a season's, you know, partial season's yeah. ticket for 2018, you can go to the All-Star game. Are you making all of Nico's hopes and dreams come true? <sighs> I don't know. I haven't clicked on it yet. I'm afraid to see how, <laughs> I, how many bills we're talking about. Very cool. <laughs> but I will say, I do go to Richmond Squirrels games and they have like my the- My family loves them. Every Thursday and Saturday, yeah. every Thursday and Saturday all summer, they have an amazing fire fireworks display nice. at this little nice. little, little no, it's great. field in Richmond. No, it's great. minor awesome. league baseball is the best. It really is yeah, fun. It's yeah, it's fun stuff. So All I will right. say that. Mm. So we were just talking with Tom Talk about teacher evaluation reform and we are going to continue that theme. More, more on that. So this week we have a study out by Jason Grissom and Susanna Loeb. It's an Ed Finance and Policies journal. Just came out hot off the press. Examines whether principals really think that all teachers are effective. Since we know from prior studies that most all students receive positive teacher evaluation using data from Miami-Dade. So this is the only, just one district, but obviously it's the fourth largest district in the U.S., so it's mm-hmm. pretty big. Uh, they ask about 100 principals to rate a hand, random handful of their teachers on various dimensions of practice, letting them know that these are low-stakes ratings. Mm-hmm. So you're only only people that are ever going to see these are us, the researchers, okay? And then the idea was that without any stakes at all attached, that they might actually give truer assessments. Shocker. Um, and these raters' ratings were later compared to the actual high-stakes personnel ratings that principals gave those same teachers just a few weeks later. So mm-hmm. they kind of timed it that way. Uh, key findings, I'm going to go quickly today. They found that both sets of evaluations were quite positive, but the low stakes evaluations tended to be lower and that principals made more use of the lower ratings, mm-hmm. such that many teachers who are rated ineffective on the low stakes measures received effective or highly effective ratings on the high stakes measures. There you have it. Uh, interestingly, though, even though principals were giving teachers ratings of three and four, which is effective and highly effective on the high stakes evaluation, they tended nonetheless to predict a teacher's value added just as well as the low stakes interview ratings. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this on a Matt, I think it was a huh. Matt Craft study. It was I covered another study on uh, Research Minute like a year ago that would rang true for me, but I didn't have time to dig into it. But they found something similar. So even though they're using the high end of the scale yep. and these ratings are skewed to the high side, teachers receiving the highest scores mm-hmm. um, tended to be more effective than teachers receiving just the high scores, huh. <laughs> um, according yeah. to student no, achievement We, we have growth. seen this before. The principals can differentiate at the very high, the high end, end of the scale and the low end. It's harder in the middle, but that's the case for probably any any yeah. place workplace, yes. right? That, that's yes. that's true. Finally, they found that teacher system, principals rather, systematically gave better than predicted ratings to beginning teachers. Again, they're comparing it to the mm-hmm. interview data mm-hmm. and worse than predicted ratings to both teachers who were absent more and in some cases to teachers of color, just aren't mm. good. Uh, takeaways, principals can differentiate higher and lower, like you just said, depending on, you know, because they're differentiating at the high end of the scale. 
They also talked about they apparently face strong pressure, again, to skew ratings in these high-stakes settings. Um, Making more use of the lower ratings would facilitate more accurate feedback to teachers. We've heard this before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Potentially provide greater incentives for these low performers Mm -hmm. to improve. Uh, I started thinking about DC, right? I know you guys just talked about that. We did Mm -hmm. see that evaluations can be used to sort of make it more likely that struggling teachers exit the system eventually. Um, And then they say this was a little wonky bit, but they talked about, and and this may be something that you guys talked about a minute ago, but just how the evaluation itself is structured. So the low stakes evaluation had a six point scale. Mm -hmm. So they think that that made uh, principals more likely to, or more comfortable to use those lower ratings when it's just a four point scale, which is what the high stakes instrument was. When you say lower ratings, you mean like ones and twos or like yeah. threes and fours. Okay. Right. Yeah. And then finally they say, we've got to pay attention to the relational aspect of all this, which we yeah. know we've talked about that. Boy, mm-hmm. the, the racial bias thing is is definitely concerning mm-hmm. and something we got to keep our eye on. Uh, th- this question to me was always, it, this is a study in Florida. And I thought in Florida, at least in most places in Florida, it is possible to fire bad teachers in yep. miami yes is that yeah. the case in miami i mean i don't know what the contract's like in miami yeah if there's something special but well I, I thought there was like a statewide well law yeah. that, then there's been tenure reform there yeah. too right and so because my theory is always that well no one's going to give a bad rating to somebody that they can't fire mm. um, it's just from my lessons i learned at the department of education <laughs> where you can't fire anybody uh you know i mean if you do give them a bad rating they're you know yeah. you're going to have to deal with complaints and uh, lawsuits or whatever else for the rest of your life right so but you know if if you can fire them, like yeah. in a charter setting, then you'd be mm-hmm. willing to call to say the truth. So right. I don't quite get, get it. it. Why yeah. in Florida are they, I mean, it, it seems like, is it just that that principal still doesn't want to give a bad rating because then they might feel like they'd have to fire the teacher and for whatever reason, they do not want to. Right. So I've been actually thinking about this kind of bias that we have a lot in context of our debate around voucher schools and private schools of choice and whether or not parents will choose a school even if the accountability system says that it's not doing well. And one thing that I learned when I was teaching is that parents are very loath to think that they have made a bad decision for their child. It like very much gets yeah. to the mm-hmm. heart of parenting. I wonder if that is um, somewhat applicable with principals, mm-hmm. like especially in a system where they've had some autonomy in choosing them. It's yeah. tough to say I made a bad call or this person who's a part of my team is like not doing very well. Like it's mm-hmm. a reflection on yourself as well. And I think right. that sort of yeah. psychology might and be coming into play. Depending on the context, it's it can be a lot of work, right? So low yeah. ratings when I was in the classroom once upon a time triggered a, a an SIP, a, a yeah. school, well, school intervention right, protocol, like a, a intervention plan for the teacher. Yep. Um, which meant you know you're going to have people in your room a lot more, which was often that principal. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to you know really attend more PD. I mean, there's a lot of work yeah. involved, and so yeah, it's more work for the yeah. principal too. And they got to look <laughs> yeah. the teacher in the eye and say. Yeah. I don't think you're doing a good job. Which is right. tough. Which is hard, yeah, again, in any setting, place. but in other parts of our society, people do it because they, do. they are incentivized to do it right. uh, in, in an education. We're too nice. That's too nice. True. I mean, we're try- we tried to incentivize it, right? We tried to hold the principal accountable for yep. the for that performance at that school, which, and he knows those teachers are the main lever for that. So, I don't know, I feel like we've, we've tried to mm. attack the problem at its most logical, you know, origin. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, we keep coming back to this relational aspect, right? And I just mm-hmm. think it's, I just don't think we've, we've managed to. <sighs> Maybe we need a law much. that 
every school must fire at least one teacher a year. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I'm just seeing the Hunger Games headlines flash in front of my eyes, and I don't think they look great. I know. We love broad brush measures like that. Not uh, way that apply fine, to every fine, school across fine. the country. You're right. You're right. It's just me crazy. All right. Well, good. Interesting stuff. I'd love to see this replicated someplace where you can't fire teachers. I bet there'd be even well, greater difference. Didn't you just right? tell me earlier today to be nicer to one of our contractors? I think in so many words you told me that. So you, you've got a little nice streak too sometimes. I, when I you want an to old know. Know. It's a problem. <laughs> even Checkers an old softie these days. I know. It's a problem. You know. All right. Thank you, Amber. That was cool stuff. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwank. And I'm Mike Petrilli. The Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.